Have you ever had that feeling? You know that feeling. That feeling when you've done something wrong, something bad, and nobody knows about it. Or at least nobody who can do anything about it. It's, it's like a weight on your shoulders, like a hundred pound pack on your back pushing you down and your stomach churns. You feel almost sick to your stomach. Your mind races wondering, who's going to find out? What if they do? What will people think of me? What's going to happen? That, that feeling we, we call guilt or regret. I know that feeling. I know it well. My name is David. I'm the king of Israel, King David of Israel. And I know that feeling well. But first, before we get to that, let me tell you my story. From a young age, I felt close to God. I don't know why. That was just the way it was. When I was a shepherd boy in the fields, I, I sensed his presence. I saw the creation around me and my heart was filled with joy. And I sang and I prayed and I communed with my God. And then one day, God placed me in a position where he used me for a great victory. I went to visit my brothers, and there was this giant named Goliath who was shouting insults, and no one would stand up to him. And I sensed God telling me that I should, and so I did. And, and with a slingshot and a small stone, the giant Goliath was, was slain. Well, of course, that got some attention. I got some attention for that, and... And King Saul, I was quickly in his favor. And so he placed me in charge of many armies. And, and I led Israel's armies in great victories, defeating thousands of enemies. Women sang my praises in the streets. I quickly began to fall out of favor with Saul. I guess he didn't like the comparisons or, or something. I had no designs on his throne, but he must have thought that I did. And so... He began to lose his way, his perspective. He lost his way with God and he eventually lost his mind and he lost his throne. And he lost his life. I was then placed upon the throne as God's anointed one, God's chosen one. And life was great. Israel was at the height of her powers. I was blessed with wealth and and, and empower myself and, and women and, and many children. Life was good. And then, and then it happened. That's not quite accurate. It didn't just happen like a bit of bad luck or circumstances beyond my control. It didn't just happen. The better way to say it would be I did something, I made choices. I, I did something. I arranged things. It was an evening and I was out on the, the palace roof taking in the view of Jerusalem and thinking about how God had been so good to me and, and taking in the night air and I saw her. A gorgeous, beautiful woman. I didn't know her name. I'd never seen her before, but she was a couple buildings over and she was taking a bath. I'm sure... She didn't think anybody could see her. I'm sure she thought she was out of view, but, but I saw her. And I know what I should have done at the time, but I didn't do. I did not look away. I saw a glance. And then the glance turned into a look. 
and the look lingered. And an idea was placed in my head. And that idea grew into a fantasy. And then the fantasy grew into an obsession. And then it led to... Well, I abused my position as king. I brought her to me and I slept with another man's wife. And then we found out she was pregnant. I should have come clean, but I panicked. And a good man, a brave and loyal soldier, a friend of mine, her husband, I arranged for him to be on the battlefield in the place where I was sure that he would be struck down, and he, and he was. And I thought that I had gotten away with it. But that feeling was still there. But as the days went by and nothing came of it, something began to happen. I noticed a change. I didn't notice it at first, but looking back, I see it now. Something changed. I began to change. My love for God was growing cold. My, my strength of, of spirit to follow him was getting weak. My heart was changing. And then one day, it all came out. Nathan the prophet came to see me. I, I didn't know why, I didn't have an inkling, but he came to see me and he told me a story and then he revealed that he knew everything. He knew about Bathsheba, the adultery. He knew about the murder. He knew about the cover-up. He called me on the carpet and I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. I felt the guilt washed over me. I was broken and I, I thought, how did I become this person? How did I become, how did I get here? Is there any way out of this? What, what can I do? You know, Psalm 51 has always been one of my favorites. And it was written by David, as we all know. But unlike a lot of the other psalms, we know why it was written and what motivated him to write it. It's right there in your Bibles. Right there underneath Psalm 51, right before verse 1, there's this annotation. Some of the Psalms have these annotations, but uh, some don't. But this one does, and they're usually put there to say, this is who wrote it, or this is what it's for. These are the circumstances. Some of them will say a Psalm of Asaph or Korah or David. Some say it's for the director of music and so on and so forth. But this one tells us exactly who wrote it and Why? For the director of music, it says, a psalm of David. When the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery in Bathsheba. Now it's a powerful, raw, authentic, almost shocking psalm. He just, David just exposes his soul, lays it all out there. And that's why I like it, because this is a psalm that I've used myself personally when there have been times when I have done something I'm ashamed of or feel guilty about. I've prayed this back to God. It's a psalm to which I've referred many people when they've come to me carrying around guilt or shame about something they have done recently or in their past. And like all great apologies or confessions, David does not hem, he does not haw. 
He isn't subtle. He doesn't dance around. He doesn't say, you know, I probably shouldn't have done that. I really didn't mean to. I didn't really know it was going to bother you that much. If I've offended you or something, I'm, I'm sorry. David doesn't qualify, doesn't try to justify, doesn't try to rationalize. He simply acknowledges his wrongdoing and he asks for mercy. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. He acknowledges his sin. In our confirmation classes, the one that we have for our 7th and 8th graders, they, they get biblical, biblical themes and they memorize some verses and they learn about theological principles and truths. And one of the things that uh, they're supposed to learn, I think they learned, is uh, the definition of sin. And, and it's this. Sin is anything that is contrary to God's will in thought, word, or deed. Now, when you define it that way, it's clear that we all sin, right? Different times, different ways, and for different reasons. Sin is anything contrary to God's will and word, deed, or thought. The Apostle Paul gets right to the heart of the matter in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, because of this, this reality, as human beings, we need God's mercy and grace, right? And one definition of mercy is this. That mercy is not receiving what we deserve. For example, if you're at work and you steal something, you deserve to get fired. Mercy is when the boss forgives you and lets you keep your job. Biblically speaking, when we sin, God as our creator could give us what we deserve. Romans 6.23 tells us what we deserve. The wages of sin is death. Pretty harsh, but... The second half of that verse demonstrates God's mercy and grace. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Mercy is not receiving what we deserve. And grace is receiving what we don't deserve. Mercy is not receiving punishment for our sins, but grace is receiving life and forgiveness and peace. Now, David understood this. And he acknowledges sin and he throws himself on God's mercy. And he doesn't try to justify it. He instead he takes full responsibility for his actions. For I know my transgressions, he writes, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. When we take full responsibility for our our actions, our sins, what does it do? It tells the other person, the person that we have wronged, that that we get it. That we understand how we've hurt them, how it's impacted them. I mean, think about a time when somebody's come to you and they've they've offered a sort of half-hearted, lukewarm apology. It kind of irks you, doesn't it? When they say something like, you know, I don't get why it's such a big deal, but if I've offended you, you know, I'm sorry. Or worse, what if they begin to deflect and say, we need to share the blame on this. When we take responsibility for our actions and our sins, what it does is it creates a possibility of healing and restoration and reconciliation with the people that we've harmed, the people that we've hurt. And David takes responsibility for his sins. 
And he asks God then to do something for him. He wants to feel clean. He wants his conscience to be clear. This guilt is overwhelming him. He wants to be restored. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and, and blot out all my iniquity. You see, after committing adultery and trying to cover it up by arranging for her husband to be killed, he feels guilty. He feels stained, embarrassed, ashamed, unworthy to be in a holy God's presence. And so he asks God to do for himself, do for him what he can't do for himself, make him clean. He comes clean before God because he knows that's the only way that he will be made clean. Let's pause for a second and again focus on verse 7. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. This is really cool. You're probably wondering what is hyssop. Well, remember back in in Exodus, the story of of, of the exit, the Passover from from Egypt. Uh, The story was that the Israelites had been slaves in Egypt for over 500 years. And God sends Moses to lead them out of slavery. But the problem was is that Pharaoh, the ruler of the land, was a very hard man, and he refused to let them go. And so God sends some plagues to encourage him to do so. And the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back was the last plague. The firstborn male of every household would die unless they showed that they trusted in the God of Israel by doing this, by taking the blood of a lamb and spreading it over the doorframe of their house. And if they did this, death would pass over them, and they would be spared. In the New Testament, Jesus is described as the perfect Passover lamb, our Passover lamb, who gives his life so that we can have life, who allows his blood to be shed so that his blood will cover our sins and cleanse us so we can be forgiven and be spared death eternal. And so David, in his confession in Psalm 51, he's, he's hearkening back to the blood of the Passover lamb, trusting that no matter how horrible sin, no matter, no matter how reprehensible his actions, that God could and would forgive him. And if David had such trust when faced with his sin, such faith, how much more should we, who, who can appeal to the blood of Jesus, the, the perfect Passover lamb? When we have sinned and feel guilty, we are to come clean before God so that we can be made clean. Next, David moves to the, the favorite part of, my, of this psalm, my favorite part, verse 10. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. This is powerful, raw stuff. Because we all need pure hearts. We all need steadfast, willing spirits to, to fully obey and love God and, and love others. And it all begins with the heart, doesn't it? Because when we sin, it is our heart that betrays us. It's our heart that lets us down, that draws us into it. Jeremiah 17.9 declares this. The human heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Isn't that true? We see something, we want it, we make it happen. It's because of the heart that we end up doing things we shouldn't. In David's case, it involves another man's wife. 
In our case, it might mean something like misrepresenting ourselves, which is a, or exaggerating something about ourselves, which is a euphemism for lying, to make ourselves look better in other people's eyes. In our case, it could be undercutting somebody at work to get ahead or to get their job. It could be cheating in a class to get the grade that we want, but we don't deserve. The possibilities are endless. Because, as Jeremiah says, the human heart is deceitful beyond all understanding. Who can understand it? Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not ashamed to admit that, like David, I need a better heart. I need a a pure heart, a, a clean heart. And I know myself well enough to know that there are times when my motives are not pure and my actions are not good and my thoughts are not honoring. And I know that I need desperately God to make me clean and to cover me with his grace and his mercy. And I know that God and only God can do that for me. And when he does this for us, something really great is that God gives us a kind of a bonus, an extra, a special. Not only does he make us clean and forgive us, but he gives us joy. Restore to me, David says, the joy of my salvation. There was a time in college when I let somebody down who I really respected. And I felt terrible about it. And when I went to talk to him about it, I could see the disappointment and hurt in his eyes. And I really had no excuses. I couldn't say I didn't know better because I did. I couldn't say that I didn't mean it because I did. I couldn't say, well, that wasn't really me because I was there. It was me. All I could do was to come clean and to truly say I was sorry. And I will never, ever forget the relief and the peace and the joy that I felt when he forgave me. And going forward, our relationship was the same. Have you ever felt that kind of joy? The joy that comes from being forgiven? You see, sin robs us of our joy. It diminishes us. But God's grace and mercy restores that joy. God forgives us and treats us as if it had never happened. That's what true confession and repentance does. Finally, after David is taken from guilt to mercy to grace to joy, he makes a commitment. God has done his part. Now David says, I'm going to do mine. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. My mouth will declare your praise. You know, I've observed something over the years, and I've seen it in my own life at different times, and it's this. When a person truly understands the depth of their sin, and a person truly appreciates and understands the, 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 the breadth of God's grace and mercy, it shows in their lives. They tend to be more gracious and loving and forgiving and tolerant and patient. They tend to focus on the strengths of people rather than weaknesses. They're quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. But the reverse is true as well. Those who don't fully grasp or acknowledge the depth of their sin, those who don't fully appreciate the breadth and depth of God's grace and mercy, they can tend to be critical, judgmental, (coughs) harsh. There's a parable that Jesus told about this. It's in Matthew 18. 
The story goes that there was a man who owed the king a lifetimes, a thousand lifetimes of wages. He could never pay it back, and so he was thrown into debtor's prison. The man threw himself on the king's mercy, and the king miraculously relented and, and released him from prison. He showed him mercy. And Jesus says on that same day, the man was walking back home, and, and he encounters somebody on the street. We don't know who or what the connection, but the man he met owed him a pittance, a day's wages. He holds the man to the, to the debt, has him put in prison. The king finds out the ungrateful man's thrown back in prison for life. And Jesus ends by saying that if we do not forgive those as God has forgiven us, this is how he'll treat us. God has shown us so much mercy. We, in turn, how can we not show mercy to others? God has not given us what we deserve for our sins. In fact, he has given us grace, forgiveness, love, joy, and eternal life. And, and I, I think how we treat other people, especially those who have wronged us, reveals something about us. It reveals the degree to which we understand our own sin. And it reveals the degree to which we understand and appreciate God's mercy and grace. David understood this. And I like to think that in the future, in David's life, after this event, that when a man was brought into his court for breaking the law, maybe a horrible act, that I'd like to think that David remembered back to the day when God showed him grace and mercy. And I'd like to think that, that King David at that moment tempered his justice with mercy. You know, if you're here today and you're carrying around guilt about something you've done, or something you're doing. This psalm is for you. Sooner or later, really, it's, it's for all of us. Because we can gain hope from it when we feel we've gone too far, done too much, said too much, had the wrong thoughts too much. Because we know that there is no guilt too deep, no shame so overwhelming that God cannot and will not forgive it. Infidelity, abuse, gossip, slander, dishonesty, Theft, murder, harsh words, greed, pride, addiction to alcohol, porn, drugs. God can and will forgive them all. We are to come like David to him, acknowledging our sin, throwing ourselves on his mercy, trusting in the cleansing blood of Jesus, the Passover lamb. When we come to Christ, He will forgive us. He will clean us. He will accept us. He will love us. And that is the greatest feeling, the greatest gift of all. Rather than closing with a prayer like I usually do when I finish speaking, I'm going to encourage us to do a prayer together. I'd like us to read uh, together the first 12 verses of Psalm 51. You can follow along on the screen behind me. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. 
So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. You you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me.